Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Jason Wood, an advocate for men's mental health and eating disorders and the author of Starving for Survival, whereby Jason explains the physical, mental and social impacts of orthorexia, where healthy eating can lead to death knocking at your door. Hello, Jason. Hello, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. I am so excited to get out here today and to uh, share my story and hopefully help some other people out there. Yeah, no, I'm super excited. I think this is kind of the first time we've spoken about orthorexia on the podcast. Um, So I'm really, really excited to kind of hear, you know, your experience and everything that's gone on. Um, So first question, because I think because this is the first time we've spoken about orthorexia, it might be nice to just kind of lay the foundations. Could you explain what orthorexia is? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I was someone who battled orthorexia for a very long time and I was actually in recovery for it and didn't even know what it was. So uh, once I discovered what it was, which is an obsession or an addiction to healthy, clean eating, uh, that really kind of changed the course of my recovery. But uh, a lot of times when it comes to eating disorders, individuals think it's solely focused on body image and weight. But in my instance, and in orthorexia instance, a lot of times it's about the quality of the food rather than the quantity of the food. So you're trying to eat the healthiest, cleanest foods possible uh, to achieve total health. Uh, Orthorexia kind of plays into the fad diets that we see and a lot of the things we see in diet culture where you label foods good and bad. And uh, as my condition worsened, my list of good foods got smaller and smaller while the list of bad foods continued to grow. And I kind of associated my own personal value to the foods that I was eating. If I was having those bad foods, then I was a bad person. If I was eating the good foods, then I was proud of myself and I was pretty much flaunting it to a point. And that was very characteristic of orthorexia. I don't want to like get into the nitty gritty like all of a sudden, but I think I have quite a like a question that's sticking out there for me. So maybe we'll just go there. Um, obviously, orthorexia is something that, you know, I think it's probably been around for a while. But like you've said, it's only become something that maybe we recognize as an eating disorder recently. And you've just said about those like good or bad foods. And I think, you know, in social media, especially we see a lot of like, you know, people clean eating or, you know, eating raw diets or whatever. Do you think that orthorexia has been brought about, you know, to the to the headlines because of those sorts of things? Or do you think it's been there all along or do you you think it has been amplified by rules and stuff like that that I've seen? I think it was, I think it's been burning for a while. Um, The first time that it was termed was back in the mid 90s. Mm -hmm. And 
since that time, I think it's worsened because of social media and uh, just the availability of diet culture. It seems to be knocking at our door now. But I remember growing up back in the 90s, and that was during the fat-free era. So people were cutting fat from their diets. And a lot of people went too far with cutting fat from their diet at that point. And those were signs of orthorexia back then. And I think it's kind of just morphed over time uh, to the point where we've got other diets now where carbs are the bad things, or you've got to eat all organic products all the time, or like you mentioned, the raw diets. So I think as diet culture has kind of evolved, orthorexia has evolved too. So I think it's been around for a while. I think it was something that's been prevalent for probably 30 plus years now, but I think we're finally starting to realize it because of social media and because I think it's it's becoming worse because diet culture just continues to grow year after year. And I think as a result, orthorexia continues to grow year after year. We, we tend to think as humans that we're always looking for solutions. We're always trying to be the best at something. And in my case and in many other cases, food was what we were trying to be best at. We thought we could eat the healthiest and that kind of brought about an identity. And I think as social media continues to grow and diet culture continues to grow, orthorexia is just going to grow right alongside of it. Mm. I guess something else has just come to my mind, kind of as you were talking about social media is, I think nowadays, sadly, you know, disordered eating has become more prevalent. So how would you say that you would kind of distinguish disordered eating to kind of a diagnosis of orthorexia? Right. And, and I guess that's one thing I want to call out now is that, you know, I'm not completely against diet culture. I think that there are individuals out there who can promote healthy lifestyles, but we need to ensure that boundaries are given and promoted as well. And I think that's often forgotten about. And in my case, in, in orthorexia's case, you cross that boundary. And in what I can kind of explain is social. It really impacted my social life. So I could no longer enjoy a meal out with friends. I would uh, decline invitations to go out with friends. I couldn't relax on vacation because I would spend hours and hours researching menus and researching restaurants. And that's when it went from being just a, a pursuit of a healthy lifestyle to becoming an obsession to kind of consuming me rather than me consuming the food. And uh, that's, that's when it crosses that line, when it starts to really control all aspects of your life, when you're thinking about food 24-7 and you can't escape it. That's when it's gone too far. So uh, while what I was trying to do started off as just trying to be healthier, trying to prevent disease and to take care of my body, it became an obsession to the point where all other aspects of my life took a backseat, whether that was my personal relationships, as I mentioned, my social life. At work, I started to withdraw from uh, activities at work, and I'm an office events coordinator, so I would plan these activities, and then I would back out of them because I couldn't be a part of something where I wasn't sure how clean the food was or if the food would be on my approved list that day. And that's really when orthorexia takes full hold is when the other parts of your life are impacted by it. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, you, I think you've given such a nice description there of the difference between orthorexia and, you know, a, a healthy lifestyle because a healthy lifestyle would be going out and seeing friends. Cause that's, you know, you're building relationships and you're connecting with people, but I guess if the fear of the food starts to kind of inhibit that, that's when it's no longer healthy. So that I guess makes sense. And um, I guess you started there talking about your personal experience and the impact it had. So would you mind just sharing kind of how it developed and kind of what, what happened along the way? Yeah, so the seeds were planted early on in life when um, I was overweight as a child and I was picked on and bullied for it. And it made me very aware of how I looked and who, who I was. So already at that point, you know, I, I had my a lack of confidence, a lack of self-worth. And then in high school, I was like, I'm going to lose this weight. I want to get rid of it. So I joined Weight Watchers. And at that point, I took it to the extremes. Um, of course, back then, I'm not sure what it is now, but back then, you would get a point allowance. Well, I would always try to go under that point allowance because I was like, if I can just lose this weight a little bit faster, I'll overachieve. And that's my nature. I, I've always tended to be that person that's striving for an A++ rather than just an A. So um, I, I overachieved and that became my defining moment. Uh, whenever I would go anywhere after that, I would tout my weight loss and tout my discipline when it came to working out and when it came to eating. And I allowed that to become my identity. And uh, I had seen the same people who had picked on me now praising me for losing this weight and dieting like that. So I kind of saw it as almost like a power that I had, something that I was actually good at. Well, then fast forward a couple of years, I lost both of my parents early in life and I went through some really dark times uh, financially. Uh, I was evicted. I fell into drugs and alcohol. I was arrested. I went through some really tough times. So while I was seeing my life fall apart, I clung to this dieting and this relationship with food that had been established because I still thought it made, gave me self-worth and it was something that I was good at. When I felt like a disappointment to everybody else around me, at least I was still good at dieting and still good at controlling my intake and controlling how I looked and my appearance. So life started to get better as my 20s went along. I, I met my uh, boyfriend at the time, now husband, and uh, things were really starting to turn around for me. Well, then I had a health scare. I had a close call with uh, colorectal cancer, which is the same disease that took my dad at a young age. And that really scared me. I did not want to lose everything I had worked for at that point. I didn't want to die young like he did. So I started looking for ways to prevent that. And immediately online, I saw all these different diets you can do to prevent cancer. And, you know, this food causes cancer or that food causes cancer. So I was like, okay, I'll just eliminate that. I want to do everything I can to just be as clean and to be as healthy as possible because I don't want to die. And that's really when the orthorexia kicked in. I think up until that point, it was kind of a disordered eating, uh, an unhealthy relationship with food. So the seeds were there. But then when I had that health scare, that's when it became a 100% committed commitment to the quality of the food rather than the quantity of the food. And uh, then for six or seven years after that, it just continued to worsen. My food routines got stricter and stricter. And as I mentioned, my list of 
good foods shrunk, my list of bad foods got uh, bigger and bigger. And it got to the point in 2020 where I was pretty much eating the same foods for breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day because I had such a small number of foods still left on that good list that I could eat. And when the pandemic hit, I was stuck at home and I couldn't, as I mentioned, I'm an office events coordinator. So with the office closed, there really was nothing for me to do. And I was like, well, if I can't feel productive at work, at least I'm going to feel productive when it comes to this dieting and this exercising. And that's really when I doubled down. And that's when I got really sick. That's when I hit my lowest points mentally, emotionally, and physically. And then it was in the summer of uh, 2020 when my husband raised some concerns. And uh, luckily that's when I started my road to recovery. Yeah, I think a lot of the things that you said, um, they sound really powerful in sort of kind of the, the things that you've been through and almost the, the orthorexia giving you sort of a an identity or maybe like something to kind of feel good about. Um, I mean, you know, correct me if I'm wrong when I say that, but do you think, I mean, and this is always a really difficult question, but do you think there was like a a specific reason that you kind of wanted to be healthy in a way was it that you kind of you know other things were falling apart so that was like your thing and do you think it actually provided that or did it kind of you know not have that impact on you Right. Yeah. And uh, you summed it up perfectly. That's what I was trying to do. Everything else seemed like it was falling apart. And I've always been a perfectionist and an overachiever. And that was so difficult for me. I looked back at my life with a lot of regret and remorse because I felt like I had just messed everything up. But then I was like, okay, I'm still good at this healthy, clean eating because I would uh, tout my diet and tout my new restrictions to everybody around me and they would praise me for it. So it made me feel good. It made me feel like I was doing something right. But I don't think it gave me what I wanted. Uh, On the surface, it might have felt like that at first, but the deeper I dive, it was just furthering the hurt that was going on inside because I was just suppressing it farther down and it was heightening my anxiety because I have I battle general anxiety anyway well now I was having all this increased anxiety around food so it was really damaging my mental health and as I mentioned my social health and stuff like that so while I was thinking in my head that I was doing the right thing and trying to be as healthy as possible I was really doing a lot more damage but at the time I couldn't see it. At the time, I thought I'm getting praise from all of these people in my personal life, so I must be doing something right. And even my doctors, they would praise me for my low blood pressure or my low pulse and say, oh, you must be a marathon runner or you must do a lot of running. Well, the truth is the only time I run is if somebody's chasing me. So, but you would hear these things from a medical professional and you'd think, okay, I must be doing the right thing. So I'm just going to keep it up. Yeah. I mean, why would you, you know, why would you question your behaviors if you're being praised by everyone in society and then medical professionals as well? Like, you know, fair enough, if everyone's praising you in your friendship group, you might think, well, actually, I'm not maybe doing things right, but okay, well, I'll take it anyway. But medical professionals, definitely, you're not going to question. Um, but ha- I mean, how do you think that we sort of navigate that? Because I agree completely with you that, you know, going to the gym exercising eating healthily it's completely and utterly glorified and I guess from my personal perspective 
um like I used to well I still do powerlifting but when I did it a few years ago I was very very kind of strict with what I was eating and people would say it's amazing that you know you can restrain yourself from eating this or it's amazing that you can get up at six o'clock in the morning and go train for three hours before work and in the back of my mind I was thinking it's not amazing it's like I'm in prison um but I, I mean how do you think we navigate that as a society or as an individual we, we must have been in prison at the same time together because that's exactly <laughs> what it felt like for me too. Yeah, people would say, oh, you make it look so easy. And it, it was mm-hmm. really hard. It was a lot of stress that went on. And, and like I said, it was 24 seven. I would sit down to watch my favorite TV shows and I wasn't present in the moment watching those shows. My mind was thinking about the next menu, you know, what my grocery list was gonna look like next week. But I think one thing that we need to do just as a society in general is watch the way we talk around food and the way that we talk around exercise. I think, for example, uh, when I go out to dinner with people, they're always like, ooh, I'm going to be bad tonight and have dessert, or ooh, I'm going to treat myself to this or that. And it's hearing those things kind of justifies what I'm doing because it's like, okay, well, you know, they, they think eating dessert is bad. I think eating dessert is bad, but I'm just not saying it. So it makes you think, okay, you're not doing anything wrong. So I think one thing that we need to do is kind of normalize and watch the way that we talk about food and diets in general. And then when it comes to the exercise, we need to promote the reasons why we're doing what we're doing. I used to work out to allow myself to eat more or to make up for feeling guilty for eating too much the day before. Working out used to be a punishment for me. And now it's become something that I wanna do for performance because I like to hike and I like to play tennis and I like to do physical activities. So now I work out solely for that. And I think just that mind shift has really changed everything. I've realized in recovery that I can still have a healthy lifestyle. I can still eat nutritious foods the majority of the time and I can still work out, but I've got to find balance. And I think that's one thing that we all need to promote more. Everybody in the fitness world, everybody in the diet culture world is balance. Um, And that we have to realize that we're all individuals too. Um, I can't follow the same fitness regimen that you're following if you're doing powerlifting, just like you probably wouldn't want to follow the same thing that I do for hiking and tennis. So we all have to realize that just because a diet or an exercise program works for one individual, it's not going to work for them for everybody. So we need to individualize these types of things and we need to set healthy boundaries. Mm. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this podcast couldn't come at a more perfect time because I think, you know, when this is released, it will be five days before New Year's Day. And obviously these sort of topics are very common around New Year's Day in terms of diets and exercise. But I think, you know, the one thing that you said there that is so important is individualizing it. And I think that for me is something I've always tried to hold on during the period of New Year in that whatever it's some goals somebody else is setting for themselves I've just got to keep myself like you said boundaried from it because their goals are going to be very different to the goals that I've set myself and I think I you know I think what you've just said as well in that you know it is okay to want to exercise or to want to eat you know quote unquote healthily um and if that's something that in the new year that you're looking to do you know maybe try a new sport or um whatever but it's the intentions I think that are the really important thing to recognize like I really want to start climbing 
but the reason I want to start climbing is because I've recently made some new friends and they all go climbing so I'm like well I want to go climbing because then I can hang out with them more um I don't want to go climbing for other reasons and I'm not picking up that sport but so that then you know I'm burning more calories or something like that so I think just having that in mind you know if you're making any resolutions kind of just checking in with yourself as to why am I making this is really important exactly yeah I I would that's the one bit of advice I would give to everybody who's thinking about a new year's resolution is (laughs) ask yourself why get to the why first and then go from there but always know why yeah absolutely because if it's fun as well it's something that you're going to want to carry on doing forever. Whereas, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day about New Year's resolutions um, and we were discussing whether we thought like setting recovery as your New Year's resolution was a good idea or not. And I was like, genuinely, I think it's the worst thing you can do because nobody sticks to a New Year's resolution past February. But if you make small changes that are actually positive, that feel manageable, it's more likely to happen. Um Anyway, I've gone completely off topic, but I just thought that that was really nice to just kind of whack in New Year there. Um, so I wanted to speak to you about your um, like the process of you being diagnosed with orthorexia. Um, I think when we spoke before, you said that you were diagnosed with you said, but then also OCD and anxiety. Mm-hmm. How did that kind of impact the process of? recovery or kind of how did that impact those different things that you were going through? Yeah, so I received my uh, diagnosis in the summer of 2020. And at that time, I was diagnosed with OCD, anxiety, and an unspecified eating disorder. And for me, I think finding the labels of anxiety and OCD brought a little bit of comfort for me because I realized, okay, uh, there's not something wrong with me. I'm actually battling something. But that unspecified eating disorder label, it didn't seem that serious to me. It kind of sounded made up because I would go online and I didn't match the stereotypical eating disorder. Usually it's a young female, usually they're battling anorexia or bulimia. Neither one of those conditions seemed to apply to me. I didn't match the demographic. So it left a lot of question marks for me. And I asked my doctor, I was like, who do I talk to? Where do I go for treatment and recovery? And he really didn't know. He was like, go home, look online, look to see what kind of resources you can find that your insurance might accept. So I got home and I started looking. And like I mentioned, nothing really seemed to match what I was battling. And it made me question whether I even had an eating disorder. Fortunately, with the OCD and anxiety, I knew there was no question there. So I was like, why don't I start with that? Why don't I focus on the OCD and anxiety first? And maybe through working on those things with a therapist, I can start to heal my relationship with myself and my body and my food. So I finally found a therapist to work solely on the OCD anxiety aspect of everything. He had never really worked with any individuals before who had battled an eating disorder. So this was something new to him, but it was something that he was willing to take on, something that he was willing to kind of grow and learn with alongside of me. So those first couple sessions that we had, the first couple months were actually focused just on the anxiety, the OCD. I also battle some aspects of PTSD from losing my parents at a young age and all the turmoil that I went through in my adolescence and early 20s. And we talked about those things. We didn't talk about my obsession with healthy, clean eating. We didn't talk about my insecurities around my body image or any of that stuff. We focus solely on the other items. And it was through those conversations that I noticed 
I was starting to heal that relationship with food. I, I wasn't as obsessed with eating as healthy and clean. I realized that I had a lot more strengths than just my addiction or my dedication, I guess, at that time, my dedication to healthy, clean eating. So those conversations were crucial. And I think receiving that diagnosis of anxiety and OCD at the same time as the eating disorder really helped me kind of stumble across my treatment plan because like I said, I didn't know where to go. My doctor really didn't even know where I should go, but I, I got lucky and I was able to find the right therapist for the time. And then through those conversations, it grew into working with a nutritionist who then we really got into the weeds about the eating disorder and the relationship with food. But um, I am just so grateful that I was able to find the therapy when I did, because unfortunately, there's no roadmap out there for a lot of individuals who were in my situation. And in a way, I kind of had to blaze my own trail uh, at the start of my recovery. Mm -hmm. Sure. I want to come back to kind of the treatment um, options and, and stuff like that in a minute. But one thing that kind of sprung to my mind when you were talking, um, when you were saying about how you worked with your therapist on your kind of OCD and your anxiety um, and, and the PTSD. I think, and, and this is kind of my personal experience and I'm kind of interested to see if it was the same for you, but do you think that the, the eating disorder almost acted as sort of like a mask for, for those emotions and, and kind of, you know, numbed that for a while? And then when you then went for therapy actually talking about the things that maybe trigger the OCD and the anxiety that was the core um and by getting to that and talking about that the kind of eating sort of behaviors relaxed a bit because you'd sort of sorted the underlying emotions if that makes sense Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Um, one thing that I've said since I, since I started my blog and started sharing my story is that my eating disorder was about a lot more than food. And that's right. It was getting to the core there, getting to that unresolved pain of losing my parents and the fallout with my family and all of those things, talking about that talking about the anxiety that consumed me on a daily basis, talking about the obsessive thoughts and the compulsions that were going on in my life. It was talking about those things that really helped me heal the eating disorder. And I think you're right. I think it served as a mask. It was kind of that cover up for everything else. So uh, while I was definitely battling an eating disorder, I think all of these things were kind of feeding into it, but the eating disorder was kind of serving as that, that mask. It, it seemed like, um, of course, even with my blog or when I talk about my story with people, it seems like the first thing they want to go to is orthorexia. And then I'm like, okay, let's go beneath the surface now and explore those other areas. And that's exactly where they were all hiding. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that is so much more common than maybe we we think at the moment and I definitely think in terms of research we need to be exploring more about you know I think at the moment for eating disorders it's almost the treatment is almost getting you back to a, a normal eating pattern which is that's fine but that is sort of the tip of the iceberg and there's so much more underneath that is left unresolved if that's kind of how you focus the treatment. Right. Yeah. When I, when I started working with my uh, nutritionist, the first nutritionist that I reached out to was like, okay, we'll put you on this meal plan and you'll be good to go. Just eat X, Y, Z. You're good to go. 
And she didn't understand that there was a lot more to it than just putting me on a meal plan. And I think that's one thing that's really key when it comes to eating disorder treatment is that we focus not just on the meal plan. If it was just as easy as eating these types of foods or eating this at this time, uh, we wouldn't have eating disorders. Hmm. There's a lot more to it than just eating uh, and following a meal plan. So um, that's why I said no to that nutritionist. I was like, I've got to find a different person to work with who sees me as more than just a meal plan, because that's not who I am. I need a lot more than that. And that's why I think having the therapist and the nutritionist kind of work in tandem was super beneficial to my recovery. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've raised something really important there in that your first therapist or nutritionist or whoever you go to might not be the right person. And that is absolutely okay. And I think a lot of the time people think that whoever they've gone to first has to be the person they stick with. And if it doesn't work, then it's their fault. But you know, you don't get on with everyone in life on like a you know very personal basis. So you're not really expected, you know, in that therapeutic setting. Um, something else I wanted to ask you as well because you obviously you know you said that you got the diagnosis of OCD um and I think when you were kind of talking about how the eating sort of developed it was maybe more of the restrictive tendencies as opposed to maybe the quality of food um do you think there's a link you know maybe like if we think about it like a um Venn diagram between like OCD anorexia and orthorexia yeah, yeah, there, there definitely is. And um, I actually have one up on my website, I think from Renee McGregor, I think it was from her book on orthorexia. And uh, I, I totally see the link between OCD and orthorexia because as I mentioned, I was becoming very routine. Uh, it was very regiment oriented when it came to my eating habits. I had to eat these specific foods at these specific times and these specific quantities. And I was constantly obsessing about food. It was all I could think about. Those obsessive thoughts were there. And then I was acting out on them with the, with the compulsions, with the, uh, I have to eat this at that time. And if I don't eat that, then something horrible is going to happen. I'm going to be contaminated or I'm going to have disease. I got to the point where there was no just even take one day off from the diet or one bite off from the diet. Uh, my husband could order dessert somewhere and say, just have a bite of this, just have a bite of that. I couldn't even do that because I was so concerned that just one bite would be complete contamination of my body. So I had to follow these routines in order to just be able to cope with my own anxiety or the guilt that would come afterwards. So I became a very routine oriented person. And I'd always kind of been that way. I've always battled OCD. Looking back, I can identify times in my childhood when I was even battling OCD. And it just, I think it really was amplified then. Um, and it just fed in perfectly to the eating disorder because it was like, okay, okay, I've got these strict rules, I'm going to follow these strict rules. And as long as I stay to them, then I'm going to be okay. But if I just deviate once, then something horrible could happen. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess with that in mind, to kind of sort of move on to the treatment, um, do you think that when we think about orthorexia treatment, because you know, I think you've already mentioned that there's not really a a, path, a direct pathway at the moment that that we can follow but do you think we should sort of take stuff from OCD and from anorexia or do you think it needs to be completely sort of fresh and new 
the yeah, so I think we could take stuff from both. Um, it, it, because in my instance, I think there were times throughout my relation, my unhealthy relationship with food, where I kind of navigated between anorexia and orthorexia and kind of back again. Um, so I, I, I totally see how the lines are a little bit blurred there. And I think that's why we don't have the formal diagnostic criteria yet for orthorexia and why it's not a formal diagnosis quite yet because it's, it's such a wide spectrum. It can go from looking like and presenting like anorexia, it can go to presenting and looking like OCD, uh, but in actuality, it's its own thing. It's just, we need to be able to define it first. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I definitely see how everything's kind of related. And I think we need to take a little of this, a little of that, and then, you know, sprinkle in just full on orthorexia. But as I've said before, it's, it's a spectrum. And there are some individuals like me who are on one end of it, where it just consumes our entire life, where I think there's other individuals who battle orthorexic thoughts and battle orthorexic tendencies throughout the day, it might not have that full stranglehold on their life yet, but it's something where uh, there's a lot of anxiety around food. There's a lot of fear around food. They're, they're sticking to a very strict plan, um, not for the right reasons. And I think it's just, we need to be able to clearly define it in order to have that diagnostic criteria. And I think you're right with taking a little bit from here and a little bit from there will help, help us go a long way. Yeah, I guess um, if somebody is listening and they're thinking, yeah, I'm a bit or maybe their loved one, you know, I'm a bit strict around what foods I can eat. And, you know, I'm, I'm worried about the consequences that certain foods will have on my health. How do you think that we can sort of, you know, because you've just said there about some people, it, you know, they might be fixated by the thoughts and it might not be like at, at the full stage yet. I'm just trying to process in my head how we can kind of step in because I feel like a lot of the time and I mean this is eating disorders in general I guess not just orthorexia um but people will almost be like oh no I'm just being healthy you know I'm, I'm just trying to be more cautious or you know I'm just trying to lose a bit of weight to prevent this that and the other so how do you think we can sort of navigate that and help people if they're kind of just normalizing it Right. Yeah. I mean, I've had people since coming out and sharing my story that have said, oh, well, sorry for you that you just failed at dieting or that you just took dieting too far, which has just shocked me to hear that. But there is that type of rhetoric that's out there because there's so many people that are just convinced that if you're eating healthy or doing the healthy thing, then it must be right. So I think we need to normalize Again, we need to normalize the conversations we have around food. But if there are individuals out there who might be restricting themselves from a certain type of food or cutting a certain type of food out of their diet, uh, they need to examine why. They, I think if just like we were saying about the resolutions, ask the question why. So if you know a friend or a loved one who you see suddenly cutting out all carbs from their diet, ask them why. Ask them why they're doing that and try to get that explanation. And maybe just even asking them will raise that question in their own mind. Um, and again, I think it goes back to, we all have individual diets, we all have individual lifestyles that we need to be aware of. So what works for one person might not work for somebody else. 
And um, there's also instances where an individual needs to cut something out of their diet for medical reasons, for actual health purposes. And in that case, it's perfectly justified. But I think in all other aspects, we need to follow kind of that intuitive eating mindset where we can allow ourselves to eat anything. No food should ever be labeled good or bad. And we should never label ourselves based upon what we eat. So I think those are important reminders to share with somebody who might be suddenly restricting things from their diet. And then when it gets to that point, when you see them start to become obsessed with it, or they start to pull back from regular social functions or interactions, that's when you really need to raise the red flag and say, hey, let, let's talk about this. Let's, let's maybe just talk to somebody about it because um, you can take a good thing and take it too far. Um, there's always that saying that says, you know, there's too much of a good thing. And in my instance, that's what, that's exactly what orthorexia was, is I thought I was doing something good, but I took it way too far. Yeah, absolutely. I love the, the saying, you've just said that too much of a good thing. I think that sums it up so well. Um, and also I think in terms of kind of you know if you do recognize that somebody maybe is making a more restrictive choice I think just approaching it with sort of compassion and you know very gently because I have in the past you know I think my kind of alarm bells always go off quite loud because I think oh god you know here you know a friend eating disorder I don't want this to happen and I think I can be quite like oh my god are you okay what's going on where which then it terrifies them so that's not great um but to you know like you said just say oh you know why why are you doing that and you know how's that making you feel I think is a much better much better approach um right. Right. But so I was just going to say really quick, and sometimes, especially when dealing with guys and men, ask twice, because we'll oftentimes say everything's okay the first time, but it's that second time we hear it that, you know, we might finally wake up and share things. So, so don't be afraid to go back and ask somebody a second time, because sometimes that's just the little nudge they need. Yeah, absolutely. And that has sign side fly I don't know what the word is whatever it's called so nicely into the other thing I wanted to ask you about which was male eating disorders um so obviously kind of that's a, a thing that you're advocating for um and uh, no I'm not gonna ask that question always write down why is it important and I distinctly remember having the conversation with someone else on the podcast and they just replied saying why is it not important and, it, you know, it's not it's not how you mean to phrase it. But I think the thing is, you know, why is it something that we feel we kind of have to kind of emphasize more? You know, not that it shouldn't be, but like why in the way that eating disorders are spoken about? Is it something that we have to kind of like, you know, actually make a point about talking about? Right. So I think we live in a society that loves to follow stereotypes and we all kind of compartmentalize and put things in boxes. And when you think of an eating disorder, that default is usually always female and males kind of get left out. And it's it, in a way, it's almost a, a flip to kind of how society is, where for so long women have been fighting for equality and for equal rights and equal pay and all those things as men. Well, in the eating disorder world, it, it's flipped. It's like guys are just forgotten about and it always defaults to women when the conversations are happening. When I see daily eating disorder affirmations or posts like that on, on 
social media, it's always her or she. Those are the pronouns that are used. It's never he or him or they. Uh, it's the same, I go on online and it's helping women recover from eating disorders, the Female Eating Disorder Institute, like all, of, it's just female based. You go on the websites and it's, you see images of females and guys were just often kind of pushed to the side. And I think that's why it's so important is to make sure that even though, yes, the majority of eating disorder um, individuals are, identify as female, there is that subset of males that battle eating disorders as well. And they're not always the, the stereotypical eating disorders either. There's the muscle dysmorphia that's going on out there or, or orthorexia, or there's different types of eating disorders. And I think it's important that men get out there and share their stories because it helps other guys realize, okay, I can get an eating disorder. I remember in school uh, when we learned about eating disorders in health class, we only learned about females. We didn't hear any stories from guys. Uh, somebody asked me early on after I started my blog if there were any male celebrities or male figures that I, I looked up to who maybe spoke out about their own battles. And at that point, I couldn't name one. Now that I've become an advocate for it and I'm more aware of it, I do know that there are some male celebrities that talk about their battles with an eating disorder, but it's not front of mind. It doesn't come to mind right away. The defaults still go back to female figures and female celebrities. And I think it's just important that we continue to raise awareness so that we know an eating disorder can impact anybody. It doesn't matter what your gender is, your sexual orientation, who, who you are. It doesn't matter. It can impact anybody. I think you're totally right. I think you know, in terms of eating disorders, what we need to do is to just get a massive bullet and shoot it through all stigmas that have ever existed. Um, and even, you know, even with muscle dysmorphia, I've been, you know, recognizing that a lot of the stuff that's coming out is about men. And it's, mm -hmm. it's almost, you know, it's almost flipping a different way in that the muscle dysmorphia is the male eating disorder which one I don't think is good because you know women can still get muscle dysmorphia but two it then makes you think that the only mate the only eating disorder a man can get is muscle dysmorphia so I think we've definitely got to just go back right down to the basics and basically relearn what we know about eating disorders because I think even even the stigmas you know about what size somebody will be or you know like what you said what gender what sexuality anything like that they're all it's all just rubbish because you know at the end of the day unfortunately an eating disorder can happen to anybody it's not it doesn't care about who or what you are um but I, I do completely agree with you and I think especially um I've had quite a lot of conversations with people recently about you know like treatment centers having flowers on the walls and butterflies and you know stuff like that or a lot of Instagram accounts will be you know all even the word like mindfulness to me screams feminine and it's like everything that we've, we've now built up this idea about eating disorders it's become really really effeminate um and I don't know how I don't know how it's happened without us really recognizing that it's happened, but it's all of a sudden, you know, everything's like all embodied. And I don't know, maybe that's just me with an unconscious bias, but to me that it's, it's all very feminine. Right. 
Right. Yeah. It's very interesting. And one thing that I want to say is I can't wait for the day until I can just be an individual battling eating disorders, sharing my story. Mm -hmm. And it's just generic. I don't have to be a male eating disorder advocate because that at that point, then we know eating disorders are equal. And to me, that that's, that's the ultimate goal is to get to that point that everybody that battles an eating disorder deserves the same help they need, you know, and all of that. So I I can't wait for that. But I think so much of what the eating disorders being associated with the female population goes back to too, is a conversation we have when it comes to societal influences and body image and that conversation. We often will see diet culture play to females. Uh, We see just really when it comes to a lot of health and fitness, it plays into that female realm. And we almost, we feminize a lot of that. And I think that's probably part of the reason why eating disorders kind of just get grouped into that too. And it's like, okay, well, we all expect women to look a certain way. So yeah, it's no surprise that they would develop an eating disorder. I think we often forget that men face a lot of body image issues too. Um, Here in, in the state, we just had a, a NBA player just this week who was fat shamed during a game on national television. And it's like, yeah, see, men are subjected to those same things too, but we don't talk about them. Yeah. And I think that's why men have yet to really been kind of grouped in or associated with eating disorders, because we often think dieting and exercising and body image and body appearance, that all goes back to women. But the truth is it can impact anybody just like an eating disorder can. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, whilst we maybe say with the social media influence and stuff that women have got more of an influence to, you know, lose weight or whatever, I think there's a lot still on men and, you know, maybe it is more muscle orientated, but I still think there's such a, such a big kind of pressure on men you know you hear words like dad bod and stuff which I remember when Zach Efron and people were saying oh look at his dad bod and you're just like I, I don't think people realize how damaging it is for not only you know not only Zach Efron but for then everybody to see kind of the negative comments that he's getting from a change in his body um and then equally like I was looking at um a video earlier of um is it rebel wilson i think that's her name and she's lost weight recently and she's mm-hmm. been getting loads and loads of attention and she was saying how you know is that what it takes is that what it takes for a woman to be recognized or for people to be interested in her to lose weight because that's a horrible world to live in oh yeah, yeah. and that's the world we live in because i, mm-hmm. I experienced that in high school when i lost the weight yeah uh, suddenly all the people that had made fun of me were now praising me and i was recognized because of my weight loss so i allowed that to become my identity identity and defining moment and yeah we we just we live in a world where we glamorize weight loss and thinness but as soon as somebody's body changes or they appear to gain just a pound it's like the media is all over them social media is all over them and even to this day as I have an eating disorder advocacy account for my blog you know where I'm sharing my story and making connections with other individuals in the mental health and the eating disorder world my feed is still full of all of these shirtless guys with their bulging muscles or six packs and it's just like we can't escape it it seems to be everywhere now with social media where we've constantly got these 
these temptations to compare ourselves to others or to worry about how we're going to appear in comparison to somebody else because you constantly see somebody with their fit body just right in front of you. It doesn't matter where you go, whether it's a commercial on TV, a billboard somewhere, or on your own phone when you're scrolling through your social media feeds. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that just kind of ties back to what we were saying earlier about kind of those New Year's resolutions and kind of just really trying to separate yourself from others because I think like you said there's there's always going to be somebody that looks different to you there's always going to be somebody that looks maybe more of what in you know in an ideal world you would want to look like but you know you can't let that consume your life because so many other things to be doing in life than you know thinking about all of that negative stuff um so yeah I think I think that rounded it off really nicely in terms of you know just making sure that you're doing what's good for you and trying not to compare yourself to others. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a couple of questions from the listeners. Um, And I think the first question we kind of covered earlier, but maybe you might want to go into a little bit more uh, detail. So somebody's asked, why do you think that orthorexia is not in the DSM-5? Yeah, so I think think a big reason why is because it's not defined yet. We need a better definition around it because it's such a such a wide spectrum and Mm -hmm. it can take on so many different aspects. Like my experience with orthorexia can be completely different than the next person's experience with orthorexia. So it's very hard to kind of write it down into a formalized diagnostic criteria to me, it's almost, it's like a a lived experience in a way. There is no pass or fail test you can do on it from a medical standpoint to say, okay, are you experiencing this symptom? Yes. Well, then you've got orthorexia. It's not that easy. It's much more complex than that. And I think we just need to do more research into it. And we need more people like myself speaking up and sharing our lived experiences with it so that the medical professionals and the researchers out there can identify how they can diagnose orthorexia. But until that time, I'm just going to keep speaking up because I feel like the more I speak up, maybe it will help raise awareness of what it is. Um, And sometimes you, you, as much as the diag, as much as the label helped me in my situation, you don't have to have a formal label from your doctor um, to know if you're battling, Mm -hmm. battling something that's not making you happier, that's impacting your quality of life. Yeah. That's so true. I think that's one thing that I really like to shout about in um, this sort of realm is that it doesn't matter whether you think you have an eating disorder, disordered eating or whatever. If your relationship with your food and your body is impacting your life, then you deserve help. So I think that ties in really nicely with with what you've just said there. And I guess, would you say it's almost a chicken and egg situation? Because, you know, we don't have a definition So we've not got the diagnosis, but then surely to be able to get the diagnosis, you need to have enough people collected together with similar symptoms, but you can't diagnose them. So that sounds really complicated. Yeah, that is way above my pay grade. <laughs> very much, it's a very much a ticket and an egg situation, and that's why it's been it's been really incredible since launching my blog and sharing my story to connect with the medical professionals out there. Mm. Uh, some of the best advice that I got when I first started my blog was to stay in my lane, and I was like, okay, I've got to go out and learn all this medical terminology or be able to speak to it from a scientific point of view. And then when that person reminded me to stay in my lane. It was like, okay, 
I've got my story and my experience. That's what I can contribute to this conversation. And I'll, I'll continue to share it with the professionals out there that I connect with um, in hopes that, you know, that will help spark the conversation and spark the research that's needed to, to get that definition. But you're right, it is very much the chicken and egg thing. Mm. Um, very hard to identify orthorexia when there's so many people out there battling it, but they don't even know what it is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, it's got to be people kind of reading about it and thinking, hmm, maybe that is me to then come forward like yourself and talking about it. So definitely, I think what you're doing is invaluable. Um, and then the other question was how to start introducing foods back into your diet when you've been struggling with orthorexia. Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. So for me, it, it's baby steps. And it's like when, you, when you're a baby and you, you learn to crawl and then you learn to walk and then you learn to run. That's exactly how it is when you're recovering from orthorexia. I had so many foods on my bad list for such a long time. I could not just wake up one day and say, okay, I'm in recovery now. Welcome back to the party. I had to do it slowly. Uh, bread, for example. Uh, the first time I met with my nutritionist, she's like, okay, you're going to have sandwiches every day for lunch this week. Well, bread had been off the, off the table for years. So I was like, I, I can't just have bread again. Well, I found a healthy recipe online and I made the, made the bread. And I felt like if I was part of making the bread and I was still using those healthy ingredients that I had approved of, or that the orthorexia had approved of, then I could get away with eating this bread. And that's where it started. So I, I didn't just jump right into eating whatever bread I wanted to again. I had to eat kind of that healthified version of bread. And I did that for a couple months. And then eventually I worked my way up to the point where I can go to the bakery now and just grab any loaf of bread I want and have that for lunch. But it took time. And I think that's, that's one of the big things when it comes to reintroducing foods into your diet after orthorexia is giving yourself a lot of self-love, a lot of patience, and take it meal to meal. Uh, even just you know, a couple of weeks ago, I had a, a meal where orthorexia won. <laughs> I guess I could put it that way, where it got the best of me that night. And rather than beat myself up for it, I, I practice self-love and compassion. And I said, it's okay. It's okay. You'll, you'll do it again tomorrow. You can get it tomorrow. And I woke up that next morning and I had one of the best breakfasts of my life. So it's just, it's one of those things where you have to be patient and take those baby steps. Um, I hear a lot of people talk about a, a red light, green light, yellow light approach to it, where you've slowly got to reintroduce maybe those yellow foods first, those foods that weren't very very terrifying, but we're still kind of on that bad list. We'll reintroduce those first and then slowly work on the reds. You don't have to do it all overnight. And in my case, I'm 18 months into recovery and there's still foods that give me some anxiety and some worry, some guilt, but I'm taking it one bite at a time. And if I can only get a couple bites of that quote unquote bad food, well, then at least I got a couple bites. Mm -hmm. uh, I might not be able to finish the whole plate, but a couple bites is a starting point and I can work from that. So it, it all goes back to practicing self-love and, and patience, just, just allowing it to, to occur um, naturally. You can't really, you can't force uh, recovery from any eating disorder, I don't think, let alone orthorexia. So like I had mentioned, when that nutritionist, I was like, okay, here's your meal plan, just follow this meal plan, and you're good to go. It's not that easy. Uh, you need to be able to incorporate those baby steps along the way. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it's such a good point to raise about the baby steps because I think often we can want to, you know, in recovery, you want to throw yourself in at the deep end and be like, well, sink or swim. You know, if you don't, if you don't make it, then you're never going to win at recovery. Um, But I was thinking earlier, actually, I was kind of reflecting on Christmas last year. And for the past few years, I remember always thinking like, this Christmas is going to be the one where I'm not worried. I'm just going to eat whatever and it will be fine. And I think, you know, last year I got close to that, but I was still very much, you know, like very aware of what we were eating. And I kind of sat there earlier and I thought, I've not even, you know, before it would be like a month before. And I start thinking, I was like, I've not even thought about Christmas and all the social activities that I'm going to do. I'm just really excited. And in a weird way, I think it often feels like you put in so much work and nothing happens, but then all of a sudden it all just starts to like fit into place. And without you recognizing, it's almost like like you've just said, you can go to a bakery now and, you know, have the bread that you want, but equally some days you might not be able to do that. But I think then the rebound back into recovery is quicker, would you say? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so. One of the things my therapist told me early on was because I was very worried of that. I was like, okay, I've made I've made such amazing progress, but what 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 if I have a bad day? What if something bad happens? And he goes, nobody can take away the last eighteen months or the last six months of recovery because you've done that. So you've got that in your back pocket, and you can always keep that, regardless of what happens today or tomorrow. You've always got that past that that recovery experience already, as he likes to put it. And I think that's that's key to remember. And um, it kind of all ties into my recovery mantra, which is something I keep in my recovery journal that goes everywhere with me. And I wrote it early on and it's trust the process, embrace the process and eventually enjoy the process. (laughs) And that's exactly what recovery is. It's a process and you have to trust it at first as hard as it might be. And then you can eventually embrace it. And now there are, there's times where I enjoy it. There are still difficult days for me, but there are some days where, where I go to bed or I wake up the next morning and I go, wow, I did that yesterday. I, I accomplished this and I'm getting better. I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing life again. I'm not consumed by food all the time. It doesn't mean there's not a bad day here and there because it's a process, but um, that's kind of been my mantra that's helped me through some of the toughest times. Yeah, I love that. I think, like you said, trusting it, it's so hard at the start, but trusting that one day, you know, it's going to be okay. is really important. Um, thank you so much, Jason. I think that's been such an insightful and such a nice conversation as well. So thank you so much. Um, I hope you have a lovely Christmas and a happy new year. Thank you. Yeah. Same to you. I, I can't believe it's already that time of year. <laughs> <It's-> <laughs> so I'm looking forward to it. It should be, should be a lot of fun. Although I hope we get some snow here. We haven't gotten snow yet this year. So, so I'll be looking for it. <laughs> so we don't normally have snow in the UK this time of year, but we've had it already. So, oh, yeah. so you've all the snow from us because we usually <laughs> get snow here. So yeah. All right. Well, send some our way. <laughs> I will. I'll send some in the post. Perfect. <laughs> If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.